1: Well, hello, my name is Eric Eastett. And I'm Scott Riveling. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Scott, we have something special today, I understand. So if you could uh, introduce and help us out with that, that'd be fantastic.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm uh, really excited to have Dr. Scott McKnight on here with us. He uh, has authored the book, Revelation for the Rest of Us. And um, who are the rest of us, by the way? Well... You've heard of Festivus for the rest of us? Yes. Uh, is that really where you got the title?
2: Yeah, yeah. This is where the rest of us comes from. Yes. It's for all those who didn't get invited to the ordinary Thanksgivings, I guess it was. You know.
0: <laughs> okay. Oh well, no. I I um, yeah. I loved. I have to say, love that you started with 1972. Hmm. I I was around. Eric was not. I was around in 1972. I saw um, A Thief in the Night. In fact, mm-hmm. I probably didn't see it, though, till 1974. Uh, my parents took a youth group there and scared uh, literally the hell out of me. And it was as a result of that movie that I just said, oh, Lord, I just really need this to be true and place my faith in Christ. So mm-hmm. I love that you started there. <clears throat> what was um, you know, What was 1972... All about for you then?
2: (laughs) Okay. I was my senior year in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, I was dating my now wife.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: We had been to a summer camp that summer, uh, previous summer, 71, and both had given our lives to Christ. Uh, In the fall, I began to entertain stuff on eschatology, but by the winter and spring, I was reading Salem Kurban. Mm-hmm. His famous book, Guide to Survival, which is a more popularized version of what Hal Lindsey wrote with the late great Planet Earth. I've heard these books are actually related in reverse order. I think Kerban was doing all this stuff before Hal really? Lindsey, but but I'm not hmm. I'm not certain of that. I haven't chased it down. But um, um, we were we were in a dispense. I was in Chris grew up Presbyterian and it was mainline, and I grew up Baptist, and it was fundamentalist, and we were dispensationalists. My father had a Schofield Bible and a new Schofield Bible, and when I was 10 years old or so, I had a paper route, and the first thing I bought was a Morocco-bound Schofield Bible. I still have it.
0: a boy.
2: and um, And so I grew up in dispensationalism, but our church wasn't heavy that way. Like, our people— our uh, high school students didn't graduate and go to classic dispensational schools. They went to Bob Jones, Appalachian Bible Institute, now, and they, they were dispensational in some ways, mm-hmm. but nowhere near like uh, some of the others. And um, our pastors did not go to Dallas uh okay. they went to Bible colleges. So I was really into that and um, got to college, and I began to think about it a little bit more intelligently rather than just uh, gullibly believing everything that Salem Kerban and Hal Lindsey had to offer. I would go to the Zondervan bookstore in downtown Grand Rapids, and there would be copies of Hal Lindsey's book all over. And I remember one time the bookstore manager said, you can take as many copies as you want. And I didn't take one because I didn't want one. There you but go. Uh, <laughs> but um, I read uh, at that time early Robert Gundry, Robert H. Gundry, Bob mm-hmm. Gundry's book, The Church and the Tribulation, right. which persuaded me of a post-trib rapture, which branded me as a liberal, as a college sophomore, because I followed the exegesis of Robert Gundry, who mm-hmm. was at Biola at the time, hardly a uh I was
0: going to say, a he's not a, a liberal, yeah. <laughs> so, uh-huh.
2: so I got into it, and then um, I... I read other books at the time, taught a class on Revelation, studied it like crazy. Then all of a sudden, I'd had enough of this stuff, and I quit reading stuff on eschatology or the book of Revelation in dispensational guise and the debates about the rapture. And then I went to seminary, and in seminary, this just was not a topic that was much discussed except in one systematic theology class, which I did not have to take. Um And then when I went to do my PhD in Nottingham, England, I read, I was with Jimmy Dunn, I read the Jewish Apocalypses, Mm -hmm. and just completely, without even thinking about it, my mind about the book of Revelation was revolutionized by apocalyptic literature. I just realized this is the kind of literature it is. Mm -hmm. And so I, in a sense, shifted my mind, but then I got a job teaching, and I didn't teach on this stuff. (laughs) So it was just sort of out of, it just wasn't of much interest to me. Uh, And then when I was teaching at North Park University for 17 years, undergrads, I had one lecture when I taught Survey of the Bible, which I usually taught about three times a year. I had one lecture on the book of Revelation, and I just did the standard stuff, you know, here's how people interpret it. This is what it is. People asked about the rapture, and I said, it's not in the book of Revelation, and the millennium, I said, is not what the millennium is about in the Book of Revelation. So we moved on, and uh, but I always had these thoughts about Revelation. I read academic monographs, and I, of course, I read the Book of Revelation, and I was building sort of in my brain um, at the on the farthest back burner. Um, I was cooking ideas about the Book of Revelation every now and mm-hmm. then, and then one day, a doctoral student. Uh, not too long ago, about five years ago, said to me, his name is Greg, he said, could you teach a course on the book of Revelation? And I said, I would love to do that, but I can't for the next course um, because I don't have time to prepare all that. And then a couple of years later, I had a graduate assistant who was interested in this, Cody Matchett. And we began to work together and he contributed so much. I said, Cody, we'll, we'll be co-authors mm. of this oh, book. Nice and and we are that's so that's a long-winded Baptist preacher's answer to your question though I'm not a Baptist
0: well funny thing about that I mean you got this request to to teach on Revelation my sort of my code deciphering tool when I first became a pastor was that if if somebody um, thought my preaching was boring they would ask me to teach on Revelation because surely that would jazz it up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I, unfortunately, I got a number of those requests early on. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> well, lay so, people, you know this,
2: Scott. Mm-hmm. Lay people are interested in the Book of Revelation because they, mm-hmm. uh, the dispensational system—I call it speculation at times—yeah, was so effective. In presenting, almost a worldview, but a way of reading eschatology that it just uh, it's just fertilized and permeated the evangelical American world. I mean, I find mainliners who didn't grow up in this stuff at all that have instincts that are dispensational, right? Because of who knows. Uh, What's his name? The guy out in California who wrote with Jerry Jenkins, Tim LaHaye. I mean, that is um, those books are captivating as a narrative and they make sense of a reality that people experience. Yeah. And that's. That's the game that they played, and they've done very well at it.
0: Well, it is interesting. I mean, you did uh, quote somebody who said that the left behind, left behind has a grip on the evangelical imagination. Yeah. And uh, I, th- I was going to actually end with this, but I thought let's just start with it since you brought it up. But I mean, what do you, how do you address that if if they're so you know if the imagination is so captured um, with left behind, what do you do about that? Well. Scott, this is the big question, and
2: yep. uh, I think that this is fundamental, and I I think Cody and I tried to do that in this book, and that is okay. out-narrate them, out-imagine them, mm. offer mm-hmm. a different imagination for the book of Revelation, and, the, and I think our book is an attempt to provide people with a completely different set of categories of how to read the book of Revelation, and when if people adhere, if they read the book and embrace it, they will find they're not asking the questions that the other people are asking. They're asking a different set of questions, but they also, I'm not going to make any contention that we've offered anything like the cosmic narrative. uh, That is so compelling that the dispensationalists offered because theirs is also so pro-American and so pro-Israel and all that. We didn't get into that sort of thing, but I, I think we offer a way of reading Revelation that would stump the other side in many ways. And what I have found with some dispensations is they say, I totally agree with almost everything you're saying. And I think you can't. Because <laughs> for you, this stuff is all in the future. It's predictive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For us, it is a way of living in the current world. Okay, and my my reading on say from Salem Kerben and Hal Lindsey, and I know that's populist uh, dispensationalism, pop dispensationalism. And my friends at Dallas Seminary, like Daryl Bach, they don't teach this stuff like that. Um, but i I think that the um, I think it's it's a profound narrative that that has to be out narrated,
0: hmm. so. Yeah, I love, I love, I love that approach. That's, that's good. I think it is interesting that when I, I showed you before we recorded a chart that I had in this book of, you know, all kinds of things happening and where the arrows went and all the connections. I think there's a sense in which when people receive that kind of teaching, they sort of like go, "Oh, I never saw that before. Yeah, you must yeah. be a genius," or <laughs> something yeah. like that. Well they also don't
2: but they but the the book of revelation for them becomes an escape from this world yes um, rather than how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in this world mm-hmm. and so if you look at uh, the pops dispensationists, they never get to discipleship
1: mm-hmm. right which yeah is it isn't how to live faithfully. Failure. yeah um. Well there and there's a sentence I I really liked you said escapism is as far from revelation as babylon is from jerusalem and that's just in the in the beginning there um and I think there is a a, a seduction to reading revelation in an escapist way because then I get a feeling out of it right there's there's the feeling that i'm going to escape some future disastrous mm-hmm. circumstance but what would you say the emotion should be if i read revelation correctly and then i leave I, i've i've read it I, I interpreted it well. I, I steeped in it well. What emotion should we leave Revelation with?
2: Emotion. Um, Eric, that's a good question, and it's, it's an important one. I, I would say that the common experience of the speculative or dispensational, pop dispensational reading is one of sort of relief and elitism. Mm-hmm. A sense of privilege that we know what's going on. It's almost gnostic, but I don't like that. That's not what gnosticism. Secret means knowledge. From. Yeah, I, I I know what gnosticism means because I've read the text, and I think that this not gnosticism at all. Right. But still, it has a sort of gnostic elitist knowledge thing. I think that um, that the emotion of the Book of Revelation it leads us to be cautious, to be discerning. To be a bit suspicious, to be dis- uh, discerning in the sense that we look at the newspaper and we, or the news, however we read the news today, which is really an interesting phenomenon. And that is we we now look and say, I don't think that's the way of the lamb. I think that's the way of the lamb. So there's it becomes... Um, a capacity to discern. And that gives people a guardedness, the, the emotion of, I need to be careful. I need to be alert and aware of what's actually going on in this world. And the political parties are all playing on a dance floor that can easily lead to idolatries. Mm. And I don't want to play that game. I, I think the book of Revelation teaches us to be suspicious. I don't think the book of Revelation is a full sketch of how to be a Christian in a political world. Romans 13 is different. 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 is different. Mm-hmm. Um, even the pastoral epistles are different. So I think they teach um, a, a different angle on, on these issues.
0: That's interesting. I wouldn't have suspected you to say suspicious or um to, to make us suspicious. I would have thought that. You would have said maybe that revelation was written to make us confident, or to make us to, in some respect, to comfort us even. No comfort.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm with you. There's a lot of things that can come up. It depends where you look. The worship songs will embolden us mm, right. uh, because we 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 worship the Lamb on the throne, and we know the Lamb is going to win. Um, but at the same time, when we read 17 through 19, chapters 17 through 19 about the whore of Babylon or about Babylon, it makes us discerning. Uh okay. so that's, you know, so there's mm-hmm. you know, there's several parts to this to that's this true. amazing book.
0: So so spell out just a little bit for us your thoughts about Babylon. Cause I I mean that that is one of the things that comes up more obviously in revelation anywhere else in the new testament yeah. anyway oh yeah and what uh, what what should we look for for babylon yeah. how should we be discerning yeah
2: um you know peter brings up babylon but he's in rome he talks he about does first peter mm-hmm. five um i i would say that the history of israel israelites judaites experienced babylon in 587 bc as an empire out to destroy the people of God, to sack the city, and Babylon became um, a trope. It became the word to use for nasty empires against the people of God. So by the time of the first century, we not only have Peter, we not only have the book of Revelation, but we have texts uh, in the Jewish world like uh, Barak and Enoch that will mention Babylon as Rome. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we quote these in the book uh, just so people can see what these texts actually look like and so so Babylon became sort of Antietam it became Gettysburg, it became Vietnam, it became Hiroshima mm. it became a term that described a disastrous tragedy in the history of Israel and it became a city connected to, Sin and godlessness that would be out to destroy the people of God. So I believe I teach my students that if you want to read Revelation carefully and well, don't start at chapter one one. Now my dad was an English teacher; he would not like this, but he's passed away, so I can get by with this sort of reading now. But, um I tell them that you have to begin in chapter seventeen through nineteen and read about Babylon to discover the true zitzim laban, or the setting in life Mm -hmm. of the book, and understand uh, the the genuine problem that that, uh, the believers in Western Asia Minor were facing. And uh, we mark it down as seven characteristics. There's idolatry. It's an anti-God. Babylon is anti-God, according to Jews and Christians. Mm -hmm. It's opulent. Uh, It's luxury. It's way over the top in how this woman dresses. It is persecuting the people of God. Third, so it's murderous, and that is characteristic of Rome. I we mentioned branding uh, because you can't live in the Roman Empire in the first century without experiencing Rome everywhere you went. The roads, the mail, the money, the holidays,
0: the statues,
2: the statues everywhere. Are, are going to be celebrated, even imperial cult in the major cities. There is militarism. This is a huge dimension of Rome, um, that they conquered countries, and it was a war machine unlike any, any war machine. In the past, Assyria would give it a good run, but nothing like Rome's efficiency. It was like someone had turned warfare into a science, and the Romans had done that, and they had conquered countries, in order to, uh, let's just say, exploit the economy and the resources of those cities. It was econ- economically exploitative. There is nothing like Revelation 11 through 13's description of the cargo that's being sent from all the countries in the Mediterranean to Rome. Um, it was... And most of that stuff you look at, you say, who needs this stuff, you know? Right. Well, they, they wanted it because of the luxury of the city of Rome. so and, and it was all by exploitation. They just robbed local countries. They got on the backs of all the workers of these countries. And then finally, one of the major characteristics is arrogance. Um, you know, nobody's going to do anything to us, is the attitude of the woman in Revelation chapter 18. Those are the marks of Babylon that were as clear to the believers of Western Asia Minor as they are to Americans in America today. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in that passage that is not also to be found in our country.
0: And so, I mean, I know—I'd be interested in this because you'll help me as a pastor here. I know that you've taken some grief for identifying America— as Babylon, I mean, how how should I handle that pastorally?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't really taken any grief. There may, okay.
0: could be criticisms
2: out there, but I, okay. I'm not reading them. And I'm too worried about But I, w- I wouldn't I would identify America with Babylon. I okay. would say America has Babylonian characteristics. Hmm. And uh, all these things can fit our country. Our responsibility is to live faithfully as Christians, in America.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And that means discerning Babylon creep in our country and in our churches. Mm. And so we have to have the courage to call it out. So how do you do this? Uh, To quote Bill Murray, baby steps.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think it's his movie, What About Bob? So you take baby steps. Mm -hmm. In other words, a, a small step forward and don't back up. Mm -hmm, dig in. mm -hmm. And I think we have to move slowly, let's say over five years in a congregation of preaching, where you can bring things up as critique of the American government, as long as you don't always critique the American government. When we do something right, we can affirm that, and we do something wrong, we can criticize that. And I believe over five years of doing this let's say, 10 times a year in sermons, you will build, uh, let's just say, confidence in your congregation that you see straight, that when it's wrong, you call it out. When it's right, you call it out. So you don't come off as anti-American or so pro-American that people think that you might as well just have a flag in the front instead of a cross. Uh, and I think that's the only way pastors can operate with this in teaching, or have some adult classes with some people who are more than willing to think about stuff. Read read books like our book or Michael Gorman's book, mm-hmm. Reading Revelation Responsibly. There, are, our view is hardly unique. Right? Uh, there's like Brian Blount, a wonderful African American scholar. Has a beautiful commentary on Revelation, and it's not filled with footnotes about all every, what everybody's saying, and it's just a clear exposition of the book, and it's it's a wonderful study, and I think getting some people in the church to read this can just sort of infiltrate, and you plant seeds in the congregation that can that are going to take time to uh, ferment and grow and blossom, and then you've got people in your congregation. Who have an alternative to the speculation?
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That was um, that was good and wise. I think you, if you're thinking about Babylon, and uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this too. We we've talked about one of the ways that the church <clears throat> lives in the world, and would be to live as an exile, to recognize our home is somewhere else. Our churches are. Um, embassies of another kingdom you use the word dissident and i'm wondering if you could just help me understand the difference what you mean by dissident and how dissident relates to babylon relates to the word exile maybe yeah um okay when you when you take the
2: category of exile you are uh you are actually saying we're not a part of this world at all okay um, and I, I i would say that's a little too strong. The believers of Western Asia Minor, the early Christians were trying to figure out how to live in the Roman Empire in a faithful way. not not go to the desert with the Qumran community, the Essenes. Uh, they weren't going to be a monastery. they were going to be in the hubbub of it all but had to be faithful and it took courage and they had to witness to this. So it was it was not withdrawal. And so I can accept exile if by that you mean we're here and we're looking forward to the new Jerusalem um, and we're never going to be completely uh, happy in Babylon. That's fine. Mm. But I tend to think that dissident is a really good term because it teaches us to, in a sense, to be suspicious of political powers as corrupt, having powers... To corrupt. Um, look what's going on right now in Jer- in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see anybody displaying the virtues of Christ. I think Israel wants to bomb the living daylights out of that place. The Hamas wants to wipe the Israelis off the planet into the sea. I'm not persuaded the Palestinians are all that innocent. I think they all have uh, blood on their hands, as Mm -hmm. it were. And they need to hear the message of peace. I think Jesus has a different message than that. And I think we need to be able to see these things. To come out 100% for Israel is is to whitewash um, unnecessary violence. Now, I've been paying attention to this newest bombing. And, uh, you know, the story is that they've bombed right on the top of uh, a refugee camp. Right. You know, and Israel has a reason. They're trying to get us a target.
0: Well, I think they got it, actually. Yeah. And
2: Hamas will, they will tell you that Hamas is putting people there because that's where the target is. And that way they'll have blood on their hands for killing innocent civilians. These kinds of behaviors are simply unconscionable.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, I I don't want to whitewash Israel. I don't want to whitewash Hamas. I'm not with Hamas is a completely different game. I don't want to whitewash (laughs) Palestinians. I want to call Mm -hmm. them all to the table and say, you guys need to stop. Mm -hmm. You need to pursue peace with one another. Let's work out a deal of peace. And... You know of course they're not going to listen to our podcast here oh well it's sitting on a hill but uh i'd you know i would love to see a two-state solution but israel doesn't want a two-state solution they don't want palestinians to have an army next to them mm-hmm. and you know the people in that area don't want israel to be a state so right. it's pretty hard to work out a deal
0: yeah so um I, I was going to actually ask you about this that you brought it up. So, how does does Revelation help us navigate this Israel situation or think about the Israel situation at all? Helpful? I mean, because because there are a lot of people committed to Israel on account of what they think eschatology is. You know, is going to trans. Right. You know what's going to transpire in eschatology.
2: Okay, um, I don't want to be too offensive, uh, and I know that what I'm saying, what I'm about to say. I would not say from a pulpit in an ordinary church. Okay? okay. <laughs> unless I'm visiting. Should we define ordinary to, church? I don't know what that unless, is. <laughs> uh, unless I'm visiting and I get to leave that <laughs> afternoon. Okay. Um,
0: and that when is, you have to survive anyway.
2: I don't think there's anything about the rebirth of Israel or the modern state of Israel that has anything to do with biblical prophecy. Anything.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: I do believe that God is going to be faithful to the people of Israel, but what that looks like in the future, I think we need to back off and claim a lot of not knowing rather than a lot of knowing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people think Israel—I was uh, uh, I was at a church Sunday where the pastor asked people to come forward and read some of the verses in the Bible that had spoken to them this week. and mm-hmm it was very clear that a couple of them were reading verses that they thought were that that the enemy needed to be crushed was the enemy of israel Mm -hmm. and that sort of interpretation has a long history um and i am someone who loves israel but i do not think the state of israel is any more innocent than the united states or Mm -hmm. germany I mean, I'm not talking about the Holocaust. Right. That's that's another level. Or Denmark or Switzerland, you know, or yep. Italy. I don't think I think that they are they are no different than any other nation. They're protecting their nation their selfish, they're protecting their own interests, and that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Christian way is to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of peace. Mm. So I think I've answered your question, but I don't think there's anything in the book of Revelation that is predicting anything that has to do with what's going on right now. Okay. This is not the makings of Armageddon.
1: That's well, and to it. use your framework, uh your <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to, to use your suspicion, um even the way you describe different nation state actors uh, would, you, would would it be fair to say I need to I need to look for um what Babylonian proclivities may be may be apparent in whatever nation state because um, that that may be what's going on in some some regard people attacking people or um, you can almost point and say ah revelation is helpful in that I can see Babylon present over there uh, in, in a particular way so now I need to be cautious about how I engage it or not engage it or support it or not support it would that be a fair yeah Eric, use? that's
2: right yes and I would also say I want to look at the overall picture. What what are they doing? And what about what they're doing is good? And what about what they're doing is, is corrupted and selfish? And that way, I think I would develop a biblical hermeneutic of understanding a nation state and its behavior. The book of Revelation gives us in chapter 17 through 19 a powerful vision of political corruption and idolatry and we can see some of that in what's going on revelation 20 through 22 gives us a new jerusalem and it can help us but it's it's profoundly christian Mm -hmm. and it's more it's more like uh constantine saved you know uh it's more like a, a christian empire where god is in total control of everything and it's all justice and peace and goodness Um, so i would say that will give us some positive virtues but yes i i would say we i think we need to look uh we listen to cnn um of late because we think they've had some good stories that we want to pay attention to and we see at times the interviewers the commentators Calling Israel to reconsider some of what it's doing, and and we like that. We see them denouncing Hamas's act of violence. We like that. We we see them calling out the suffering of innocence. We like that. So I think that's what the kind of thing that we can do and see what's good and what's not so good.
0: Hmm.
2: And in war, the not so good gets really bad right it's evil
0: you mentioned um you know that you didn't see anything um about the the future of israel or the apocalypse there in rev uh or not the apocalypse but the future of israel in revelation what about the future? what about america scott this is your big chance to tell us right now like what you see about america here in revelation
2: <laughs> well there's nothing about america in the book of revelation except okay. for this is that babylon is a template the description of babylon is a template for political corruption and <laughs> because america is a superpower in the world it is no different than israel and it is no different than russia and no different than Ukraine, in that these words describe uh, the sinfulness of Babylon when it turns to idolatry, when it turns to economic exploitation, when it turns to militarism, when it turns to opulence. Um, All of these things can be used to interpret, the moral virtue of a country, including the United States. So to me, when President Biden immediately announced almost an unequivocal unequivocal endorsement of Israel, I thought, okay, I know we're in allegiance, we're in alliance with them. We're a democracy like they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a that's a political term that needs definition and it's not mm-hmm. so we've done that before <laughs> yeah yeah but um the um and and i would say that um that kind of unequivocal um defense and alliance that does not also talk about peace that does not talk about the palestinian people that does not talk about let's say i mean biden was very strong in his critique of Hamas. I thought that was appropriate. But I I think an unequivocal endorsement of Israel leads to um, moral compromise.
0: Mm -hmm. And how much, I'm I'm just wondering, I mean, I I can't get in the mind of President Biden, but I wonder how much of that is informed by this sort of latent um, pro-Israel dispensational fog in the world.
2: No, there's no doubt about it. A, a book by a guy named Paul Boyer mm-hmm. called When Time, I think it's called When Time Shall Be No More. Um, I thought I had it right here on the shelf, but I, I don't see it.
0: I see a lot of other books.
2: Uh, yeah, this that's those are the ones in the back. There, there's some stuff on Revelation I read over here. But Boyer wrote a book and, in which he demonstrated that dispensational thinking about Israel particularly in, li- in the 20th century, but from, the, say, the 1930s on with the rise of Nazism and the rise of the Holocaust, led to a pro-Israel stance that was shaped by dispensational eschatology. Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush um, were overt and made very strong statements about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But others have carried on this um, unequivocal endorsement of Israel. And I don't mind having t- people that you think are on your side in the in the cosmic battles, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, never to critique is a dangerous position to be in. Mm-hmm. We see this in our political parties. If we think the Republicans are always right, uh, that's idolatry if we think the Democrats are always right that's idolatry we need to have a Christian hermeneutic that allows us to see the good and the bad in all uses of power hmm. have I gotten you in trouble yet
0: well um with some people I'm sure're <laughs> <laughs> well, not for, concerned thank you for trying
1: though yeah <laughs> well and uh, I want to I want to go back to... The we were talking earlier about the dispensational imagination and how, um, they have a good narrative, it's helpful and it yeah, yeah. It, it's helpful in that it ignites an imagination and it's easy to kind of look around for things. And you were, um, uh, downgrading your view a little bit in that you're saying, Oh, I, it, it'll be harder for us to do this because it's not as cosmic in scope. And I kind of think that this. The view of these two cities, Babylon or New, Jer- New Jerusalem, that's actually more cosmic in scope than hmm. um, a dispensational view, a dispensational framework where I'm looking through immediate things that are happening today and trying to place them. You're offering something more like what Augustine did with City of God. There's the City of God and there's the City of Man, and there's only these two cities. And you're you're either in this city or you're in the, in the other city. And I think that's that's a comprehensive story that's a that's a huge story. Sure, it touches nation state interaction and how do I look for Babylonian influence but it's grander in scope than those small things because um, those things the, the news of 60 years ago is going to be different than the news 60 years from now. Um, but th- this this story will go on forever um, And to have an attachment to the New Jerusalem instead of Babylon, uh, I think is is a grand a grand piece, a grand narrative. But the, the question I have is, how do I, you, you mentioned dissidents and we were going through the exile and dissident piece. When, I, when we often in, on this podcast talk about exiles, we usually go to Jeremiah 29, 29 where the exiles are in Babylon and they are told, mm-hmm. uh, you need to plant gardens and mm-hmm. marry and have children and be invested here and seek the welfare of the city all the while knowing they're in Babylon. They don't want to be in Babylon. They don't like Babylon. All all of the negative connotations of Babylon are there. And yet they're told to engage um, anyway, with the hope of a, a coming rescue. How would you tell us to engage the now? How is Is it always a dissident thing or is there is there a way to engage? We, we live amidst Babylon, if not uh, for Babylon, at least amidst Babylon. How would we engage in mm-hmm. the cities we live in.
2: Um, one of the uh, hazards of being a Bible guy is to let a biblical text say what it says uh, rather than smearing it with other texts. Um, and so the book of Revelation teaches us to be dissident. But um, I'll just use one term. The, the pastoral epistles, especially 1 Timothy, uses a Greek word, Eusebio. And it is translated in like the NIV ESV, they translate this word godliness. Well, an, uh, a Native American wonderful New Testament scholar named Christ, Christopher Haklatubi has a book called Civilized Piety in which he proves that the Greek word eusebia is equivalent to the Latin word pietas, which means civilized piety or socially respectable public religious life. Hmm. Well, the word godliness, you know, for a lot of people is going to take you to Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans rather than to a socially respectable life. Uh, Clearly, what Paul is doing in the pastoral epistles is asking the believers. He's telling Timothy and Titus, this is how I want you to get people to live in the Roman Empire is... I want them to conduct themselves in the public way that will be socially respectable, and yet there will be a sly civility about it, mm-hmm. is that there is a subversive element to what we're doing. So that's one, and First Peter is pretty much the same way. First Peter teaches people to respect the emperor. Now, that was mm-hmm. Nero, if that's the right date for the—and for, mm-hmm. and that's a—he's a first-class jerk. Uh, by the end of his career, he was just a, a megalo. I mean, it was just, he was disgusting as, as a person. And he calls them to live with good deeds. Agatha poieo is the Greek verb that would mean doing public acts of benevolence that would include things like building bridges and buildings and funding people if you have the kind of money when there's a famine. So there is, um, I believe that we can discern in context the good that we can do that will give us the capacity to speak prophetic words of critique when critique needs to be offered Hmm. so
0: that's great let's let that be yeah let's let that be the last word that was uh that, that was helpful to have you um put a point on it like that so Anyway, I want to encourage you, listeners, to get revelation for the rest of us. And I want to say thank you to you, Doctor McKnight, for spending some time with us. I would uh, could have talked to you much longer about this, so appreciate yeah. it. Yes,
2: thank you very much. Good to be thank with you. Well, good to be You're with right you.
0: On. And Lord bless you, and have a yeah, have a good rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks. And
1: listeners, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review goes a long way to getting this to other people share it with a friend. And if you have questions, send them to comment at com, And we look forward to the next conversation.